Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the founder of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing artists and creatives working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Creative Metaverse. We are filming from the Leona Gallery in Austin, Texas, in the heart of East Austin at 12th and Chacon, and we are speaking with digital sculptor Aria Harvey today, who's joining us from Rome. Thank you so much for being here, Aria. Hi, hi. <laughs> How's it going today? Oh yeah, I know it's super late for you, so thank you for making this work. No problem. Um, Aria, I um, am really intrigued by the, you know, the little that I know about you from what I've found online. And, you know, one of the first things I wanted to dive into was just your story of, you know, how you went from, you know, childhood in Indianapolis to this career in Rome. And, you know, how did you find all the paths along the way, this winding road to where you are now? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and of course, it's a long answer. <laughs> but it's fine to have version, a long answer. The sh short version kind of involves the internet um, in that um, I've been on the internet um, since the beginning, like, and creating artwork um, with computers. Um, the internet, when I first got online in 1995, was kind of the perfect fit for my uh, need to create artwork without a studio because, of course, I was um, in my 20s back then and um, and I didn't have, I was living in New York City and I didn't have any space at all. And so when I discovered the internet, it was sort of, um, it seemed like a genius like thing to make artwork that could be created digitally and then delivered to directly to an audience, right? So um, I was doing at first uh, like just straight up net art, like so programming things, web pages that were meant to be seen as artistic objects. Um, but then it was later that um, I met my partner online also, and I moved to Europe to um, sort of be with him. And so that we started working together on different projects like web design projects, art projects, et cetera. And um, yeah, and from there we started making video games and made video games for 13 years. Um, and wow. it was through video games that I started doing 3D more intensely. I've been doing 3D like sort of all along since the 90s in one sort of capacity or another, but um, really got serious about everything when we started making video games in 2003. Um, our company, Tale of Tales, uh, put out eight uh, sort of commercial titles and um, we dissolved it in 2015. So like since then I've gone back to sculpture, which was my first love, the thing I couldn't do in the beginning because I had no studio. Wow. <laughs> and, so yeah, that's sort of how this happened. So interesting. Well, I mean, and then also it's like, so as a child, were you sketching and sculpting all the time and you know taking that through I was high painting, school actually <laughs> i was sketching always um in fact like right next to me we have like a bookcase that's filled with all my sketchbooks oh wow um, from when i was quite a young person like 13 years old or so like i started keeping a sketchbook it's like been a big 
um, sort of continuous thing in my life, a big presence in my life is this notion of sketching. Um, and I was painting more than anything else. And when I went to New York City to go to art school, I thought I was gonna be a painter, but that's just not how things worked out. I started getting more and more involved in object making, um, kind of through sculpt, through furniture design, actually. Like I, for a moment, you know, you're young, you don't know what you're doing, you're seeking. And I ended up doing, making furniture for a little while. And then um, that turned into, um, wanting to make more artistic objects. And so I ended up in sort of bouncing around the school a lot and ended up in, in sculpture. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I was also using at the same time using computers, although there was no notion at that time in the early nineties of what uh, digital art might be. Um, you just sort of, anyone who was interested in computers and art sort of ended up messing around with things and making things and having no compass at all. Um, really. Wow. All of these things were happening kind of. And what programs were you using um, when you were at Parsons? Well, Photoshop 1.0, <laughs> literally. Um, wow. And then there were some other more obscure um, DOS programs like wow. Luna and Crystal 3D and all these things that were very, that I don't even remember what they did anymore, but um, um, yeah, like sort of. But it was interesting to you more than just the, the paint on the canvas. It, there was something about it that was drawing you in more. Well, so. what was drawing me in a lot was like, I also did a lot of photography, like black and white darkroom stuff, you know? And so I could scan in my photographs and I right. could, do some photo manipulations and then print them back out. And I was sort of fascinated by that whole process of doing early photo manipulation uh, work, you know? And I did like really strange things. Like um, I would take it to like a service bureau where you could get larger prints um, of things, but I would get things output to film, like uh, to large pieces of transparency. And wow. then I would do contact prints of my photo manipulations in the dark room. Wow. Like I Very came up cool. with all these different processes and it was just like sort of making things up because right. there wasn't a lot of options. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it's still very tactile what you're doing, but you're still using the computer, which is still what you're doing today, it's seemingly. Yeah. And to make it weirder, I was I was doing uh, photo emulsions onto glass. Oh yeah. Things like so it was like a real material exploration, which is something that's always been a constant in my work too, is this messing around with different materials. And, um, you know, my sculpture kind of ha holds that today. It's sort of this, like, uh, I don't know, uh, tactile uh, media. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So then you finish with Parsons and then what's the next step for you after that? Do you go out and get a job right away or? Yeah, 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 big time. I, I worked at, um, since I had computer skills at the beginning of this era that was sort of an important one in publishing um, where it was a transition from sort of the old way of doing um, magazines and books and things like this, where they would do paste up like literally on paper and yeah. measuring with rulers and stuff and they were translating all this stuff into computers so the first jobs I had out of school were at publishing companies working on books um, helping art directors 
translate their designs into yeah. computers. It's it does it sounds boring now, but at the time it was incredibly exciting because it was like you could work at a magazine, you could work at books, in books. I, I worked on at Pub, at Penguin, for example. Like you know, I just worked with like, and then um, my big job was like at a at a company called Workman Publishing, doing calendars and <laughs> all kinds of books. Like you know, just I was. And you were living the dream then, right? Like yeah, I was the computer person. You know, like nobody knew how to use the computers, and so I was helping everybody and you were still being creative and you were getting paid and like I mean I was young so right. it's not like I got any power or anything sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? like a design or anything like this although I tried but but you were happy you weren't um you know it wasn't like this is the worst ever you kind of yeah, understood that it. this was yeah exactly I totally loved it yeah. and then what what was the next step after that well, that was when I discovered the internet. Like when the yeah. internet came, I just quit everything and just did did the web full time. Like I I just really loved it. I was so excited by the World Wide Web, like BBSs, like everything. I just loved everything about it. And I um, met a lot of people who were also interested in that. And it was like heavily geeky territory at the time. Um, and, that's uh, cool was your mom like what are you doing you're quitting your job to go do this or mom was online before I was okay oh she wow you serve she was like reading <laughs> a newspaper like via some like you know early online like uh, newspaper service she was the one asking me like why I wasn't online actually she's always been like that <laughs> wow like, really. that's very cool so, um, so you quit your job and you're fully immersed in like a two-dimensional form of net art at this point, well, it was right? More than that. It was more than just two-dimensional. It was like virtual, you know, right. so, like, it required me actually to give up tactility, which was mm. a real struggle at first, actually. Like now it, you sort of take for granted this screen and like the things that are on it. But at the time it was like a choice <clears throat> to create something real or to create something virtual. And it, you really felt that choice. It's like, I'm not touching paper or pens or paint or wood, you know, or metal like I normally was. I was just dealing with just the screen. And this was a real loss uh, that I felt. Yeah. at that time and it took a lot of adjustment to get my practice on the screen believe it or not and so a lot of my work back then really I tried to create these illusions of depth and like I really felt like I was trying to create a space inside of the screen like something that could make people feel like mm. they were gonna they were they were sort of virtually looking at at objects and I had a lot of um, very illusionistic kind of for I mean you know everything was very small scale back then like it's very illusionistic though and and that was yeah. sort of my hallmark and that's why people came to me um to make things for them was because they wanted this kind of visceral or um this this these these textures these uh, illusions mm. Which must have been uh, quite exciting too for a young artist to kind of get that confirmation that uh, you're, you know, you're on the right path and people are seeking out your, your specific style and your yeah. story that you're trying to tell, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're kind of your first foray into 
your own thing, right? You're no longer working for somebody else. And now I'm creating my own mythology. Yeah, so and in fact, it felt like, why would I work for somebody else? If people are going to ask me to like make things for them, then that's what I should be doing. I hadn't really no notion of what it meant to be like a freelance artist or designer. It was more just like people asking me to make things for them that I would have made anyway in some ways because design wasn't the, a codified thing on the internet yet it wasn't mm. like you know you always have the hamburger menu or like you know use a certain way of um you know white background so that you can read the text or it was sort of just whatever you I could come it. up with that other people would accept you know so it was fun yeah that must be so exciting to be you know getting paid for what you're already doing anyways right and people wanting that specifically um and so from there um I know you worked with like large brands and lots of different um, people in that space. Um, from there, how does the work get translated into more of the three-dimensional aspect? Well, I think it was because I was already trying to create these kinds of uh, three-dimensional illusions. Mm. Like, um, you know, um, what I guess we would call now skeuomorphic kinds of design or something um, that making things in 3D made a lot of sense. So what had happened was um, there were some very early um, uh, languages online, like VRML, that was a 3D um, language that was really in, sort of pushed for a moment online. Um, and then there were plugins, what we call plugins for browsers that could also handle other kinds of 3D formats. And so I started playing around with those um, around 2000, 2001, in 2001, yeah. We got a commission from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art to create a, um, a work for their, a show that they were having on art in technological times, it was called. And, um, and we used that, pl a plugin that we had found to create a, um, a, an online, um, immersive world, you might say, but it was generated from um, the code of other HTML pages. So you would feed it a URL. Wow. Um, it was inside the browser, but it was a browser inside the browser. So you would feed our system a URL, so cool. you'd go and parse the, parse the text of the, um, the code that makes up that HTML page. And when it found different um, tags, HTML tags, it would put a, an object in the world. So, you know, if you used a blink tag, you would get a big volcano in the world. If you used like a wow. background tag, you'd get a rainbow in the sky or something like this, you know, font tags were rabbits, like, and, and so you could wander around in this world and it was just generating this, what we called uh, a garden of Eden for every single HTML page. So it's like the original metaverse, like already there. In a sense, in a sense yeah. That's um, incredible. Um, and but it was like every single page could have this, and then uh, Michael, my partner, and I were, were we were three D models in this world. We were Adam and Eve in the world, and we were running around naked in the <laughs> in this world. And you would see us like dancing to the code of the page, and yeah, it was pretty mad. And I'm I'm really upset that that project no longer runs and no longer exists. Um, right, because those plugins don't exist anymore, right? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work anymore. Um, that's how technology ro rolls, I suppose. And so how were you making yourselves 3D at that time? I mean, was Blender around then or no? We were using, well, we might've used 3D Studio Max at that moment. Um, okay. 
but uh, Blender was around, you know, we were using Blender from like before it was a open source, like foundation thing, you know, Blender was, cool. Blender 1.0 was like a for sale product, you know, and the company kind of failed and then it went away for a moment, but then um, they came back stronger, you know, and they were like, we're open source now. And everybody was like, what does this mean? You know? Um, so we were always down with Blender, um, but uh, we used a lot of different programs like back then. So we were using 3D Studio Max for a minute, which I hated. So we we switched to Maya. Mm -hmm. I don't know. To make ourselves, um, though, we did a weird thing. Um, we did, a, we're doing a couple of different projects back then. So what we did was we went to this, um, uh, since it was a commission, we had a little bit of money for the project. And so we decided to get ourselves 3D scanned. Nice. Um, which was really a funky thing to do back then. Like we had to go to a sort of a specialized studio um, in Liverpool, I think it was. Oh, wow. 3D scanning. Um, yeah, they were usually 3D scanning people for like sports purposes. I don't know, for like creating custom, I don't know, stuff for, for sports Wow. Do you remember how much it cost back then to get a, your 3D scan? <laughs> I do not remember, but I remember it was a booth. It was like a 3D yeah. scan booth. And we had to get in inside of it. And um, he scanned both of us. And then the, for the other project we were working on, uh, Michael and I got into the 3D scan booth together because we were curious oh, right. what, it gonna, what it would bring if we were in there together. And so we both got in there naked and kissed and that created one scan of both wow. of our bodies. We created a project called The Kiss from that from that scan. Um, the other, the scans of us individually, we ended up, it, they were too complex really for us to do anything with. So we ended up like sort of just tracing them, making very low res versions for the Eden Dot Garden project. And we used those same Adam and Eve models that we made for Eden Dot Garden. We used them as um, Quake avatars. Quake, Quake was a, an online, um, or is an online uh, multiplayer shooter game, um, but you could mod it really easily. So we created these avatars for Quake, but we put our guns like under the ground so we didn't have guns and we were oh, just wow. walking around basically naked on Quake maps. And we probably freaked out a bunch of people back then. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Like a That's performance so cool. in Quake. So this commission is probably one of your first forays into 3D, yeah, yeah, it was definitely, right? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then that was well received. So you're like, hey, there's something to this 3D world that I'm enjoying. Yeah, I mean, we were always creating what we felt to be 3D world, but then it or immersive right. world. Let's say they weren't 3D; they were immersive. But at the same time, um, what I liked about 3D was that it was um, we weren't faking it anymore. We were really creating this space, you know, that you could fall into and that you could mm. walk in. And so I loved that feeling. Um, in the beginning, I can say for a fact that I really didn't like making 3D stuff at all because it seemed so, it was so laborious. You know how it is when you, well, when you first start 3D, you, right. really, you really suck at it, you know? And so it took me like a long time to feel truly comfortable, like that I could translate what I was thinking about and what I really wanted to do into 3D because, um, 3D programs in like, you know, 2000, 2001 were like not what they are today. Let's say it like that. They were a lot more picky, finicky. You had to be more careful with your triangles, your polygon counts. 
Um, your texture sizes were small. You had to lay out your UVs impeccably if you wanted to get anything. Like, you know, it was right. much more technical and precise thing. Um, but I love that you speak to this because I think we always look at the end product or where the artist is now and you forget about all the, the rocky roads along the way and how laborious it is for anyone to learn a new task, right? Real, real, yeah. It's like now that I'm teaching this stuff, I'm always like telling my students to like not give up because that mm -hmm. was the one thing I didn't do even when I hated it. Like, so we went, we started to make video games around 2002, 2003, and it was the same deal, but we were using a game engine. Our own, we didn't want to make mods. We wanted to make our own games. And so we had to find ways to do this. And this wasn't like something you could just look up on YouTube. There was no YouTube. Right, you know? right. <laughs> there was like, so how do you figure out how to make a video game, you know? Um, and so we started going to the game developers conference. We started like just meeting people and asking them. There were forums, there were online forums and where people were exchanging knowledge and stuff. And so we learned a lot there, but I was using Maya um, and um, in that, and I made my first like lead character of a game. And um, that game was called Eight. And we only ever really made a prototype of it. Um, um, but that lead character was a little girl and it was like, it, it really kicked my butt, like trying to make this character, you know, I had made drawings and all this stuff of her and I knew her, I felt like I knew her, but it was so hard to translate that into 3D and we started working with other 3D artists who were like helping, you know, and I was just like, I felt so inadequate, like, right. oh, I could get this right, you know. But I had to make it like I couldn't let somebody else make this main character, you know, they could work on other things on the game, but they couldn't work on this, you know, and so I just struggled through it. Yeah. Wow. And what um, I mean, what made you persevere through all that? Why didn't you just say, oh, forget it. I'm going to give up and just go back to clay modeling or I mean, sculpting or something else. No, no, no. You, you really in order to make any kind of in order to make any kind of 3D world a video game, you know, which is a big endeavor. It's like you you kind of have to believe in the idea to the point where this is the thing that you most want to see in mm. the world. Like you think it has to exist. You know what I mean? It's like we were just obsessed with the idea that we had for this video game. And we were like, well, you know, this little girl was already alive to me. You know, it's like I had to yeah. make sure that she uh, that other people could see her, you know, wow. and I was more obsessed with that idea than I, and so me struggling through like learning how to make this was sort of just like, it's something I had to go through, <laughs> you know? Wow, that's incredible. So so this is a, a, a period in your life where you guys are heavy into making games, right? And you make several games, right? At this point? Yeah. We, 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 we made this one, okay? This was the only real game that, you know, we wanted to find a, publisher and we wanted it on cd-roms because back then you there were no <laughs> downloadable games yet like i mean there were a few but it wasn't like no and is someone paying you to make the games at this point or you're all no. self-funded uh no uh in europe you can get arts funding so okay. we were doing this with arts a combination of things it was like arts funding and we we kind of were we had a a research, um, I forget what you call it, like a postgraduate research. Um, like a grant at, maybe? Yeah, um, at a school in Maastricht in the Netherlands. Um, um, and so it was sort of a combination of it being a half student project, half um, 
um, through arts funding because we had to convince, like we lived um, in Belgium at that time and um, the, there was no game fund. So we went to the film fund and they mm. had an animation fund and then they had an experimental media. You know, we were just like, okay, so we're doing this experimental thing and it's game. And they were like, we can't fund games. And we were like, well, why not? And then they were just like, it's, we just can't because th they felt like games were these, um, sort of destructive in a way there was a real stigma around mm. game and and not a cultural product if you know what i mean and so right. we literally took our computers down to the ministry of culture and we were like no look you know to the to the film fund people and we were like you know you should be supporting this kind of uh, cultural production it's really important like it's not all shooter games you know right. we're, we're making and we showed them everything we were working on and they were like okay great we can fund this, you know, and, and so that's, and so we continued to work with um, that kind of funding throughout the existence of Tale, the entire existence of Tale of Tales. Um, and all of our games were made like that. So uh, yeah, the next game we really put out wasn't until 2005. We didn't make the first game because um, we had to sort of go through a publisher and no publisher would take us on because I our game was extremely weird at the time, like for them. It was about a little girl trapped in the Palace of Sleeping Beauty. Everyone is asleep. It's kind of an adventure game, but it was fully 3D where most adventure games back then were point and click 2D games and ours was a full 3D world. Um, and so nobody would really deal with us. Um, also, we were new. We, right. You know, there was no way we could say they were going to make their money back, etc. Um, so anyway, what, what we did then was um, we continued, we were still making net art and everything, and we got another commission from a museum this time, um, a museum in Luxembourg, um, asked us to create a piece of net art for them, and we were like, can we make a multiplayer game instead? And they said yes, and so they gave us a small bit of money, and we created, with that we created the first version of The Endless Forest which is our multiplayer game, which is still online, still running since 2005. Wow, <laughs> so that's incredible. It still works um, and it's still free. And, um, wow. but it went through a lot of different changes over the years and it was funded through a lot of different ways. <laughs> and so um, it's a long saga with that game. Do you know how many people have played it to date? I do not know. I could. I bet it's a huge number. So many. Yeah, it's a huge number. We know people who have grown up in the endless forest. Like they tell us they were playing this game when they were 11. Wow. And now they've graduated from college and they donate. People donate to keep the servers running and stuff. And so people donate to the game because they just have fond memories of it from when they were. So like you have to take this back to the Ministry of Culture and be like, look, look at this, guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you didn't think this it. was. Yeah. Like, like, they funded parts of it. Like we funded it through um, um, festivals where it was shown. It's gone on tour for like different like um, games, exhibitions. It's like. We've done everything with the endless forest. It's crazy. What is the allure, the um, story aspect of it, or is it the artwork in it? Funny, you know, the funny. I think it's the experience because the funny thing about the endless forest is there is no story and there is no game. Um, actually. Oh right, there's no like um, thing to win. No, no, not at all. There, it's just an environment where you play a deer. Everyone's a deer in a for virtual forest, and Beautiful. there's no chat. There's nothing. It's really about this 
um, sort of putting yourself in in an embodying an avatar. Um, and I wow, this is you are wow. You're so um, so interesting. How far ahead of the curve you are in so many ways. You know, with the onset of the metaverse, like. Now this is your second foray into uh, yeah. really creating this, right? Yeah. And it's really funny because it was like a multiplayer game and everybody tells you as a newcomer to video games, don't try to make a multiplayer game, you know? And that's exactly what we did. It's just like, no, 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 it's going to work, you know? And, and we didn't know anybody was going to play it though, but um, because wow. we were just like, this is just a weird idea we had, like, you know, but then people thought it was fun, you know, because people, a lot of... Um, things in a in a virtual world really actually happen inside your mind it's like um that was our whole premise for the game was like there are certain things you can do in that virtual world i mean you find things in the forest you eat a pine cone and you get a certain spell that allows you to cast like another a sort of change on another person you don't do anything for right. yourself you always do it for another person you know it was a big oh wow experiment. It was a big design experiment at the time. And you find magical areas in the forest. If you sleep in a circle of mushrooms, you turn into a frog, like, you know, all kinds of like things can be discovered in that world. And right. Also intervene in that world. Um, still, Michael and I do this sometimes. We go into that world and we have superpowers. He and I um, can make all kinds of things happen in the world like that normally don't happen. Um, <laughs> Well, no, that's super, I mean, that's super interesting because we know games are being used for, and when I say games, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm putting air quotes around that, right? Because it's, uh, it's just an immersive world, right? Where you can find solutions to uh, mathematical equations or, you know, drug manufacturers or, you know, God, God knows what, but I, I love the idea of having this experience. Um, and again, going back to what, the culture, I mean, the Ministry of Culture was saying is like, you know, games can have this negative experience. Here's the opposite of that happening, right? Well, In the very early stages. That was all definitely by design. At the time, everybody was playing World of Warcraft. Right. And we were sort of struck by the fact that, you know, the, it was hard to go in as a female. It was hard to um, not get griefed in the game. It was hard. It was always about grinding. And we wanted to create a little oasis for people. Like, right. Okay, played WoW for like seven hours. Go play our game for five minutes and see how you feel, you know? And that was pretty <laughs> much like the design goal was to give people a, a place to rest in a sense yeah and to, to change out of these warrior clothes and to be like something a little more um primal a little more free right. run in the forest for a while you know it's so interesting so were you a uh world of warcraft player yourself no, were you into no 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 not at all not one bit we did it for we played things for research a lot but we didn't yeah. really like so Tell me about, you know, you were you um, a gamer? Would you ever consider yourself a gamer? You just enjoyed the experience of creating in this? I enjoyed virtual worlds very much. So like back before we really had full on 3D worlds, you know, there were CD-ROM games, there was Myst, <laughs> you know, there was stuff like Doom, obviously, you know, I didn't really get into that. I liked these, like, yeah, indeed, those point and click adventure games, you know. I liked um, text adventures. I liked, you know, things that really had me sort of immersed in these um, 
virtual worlds, whether that was text or 2D, 3D, I didn't care. But then when I, it all kind of changed and clicked for me when I saw Tomb Raider. first. Oh, really? Because it was a female lead? No, because the world was amazing. Mm. The design of that thing, well, female lead probably helped. I mean, I'm right. Like, <laughs> at the same time, it was the first game where I played it and it was like, it just felt like I was inside of like this whole, like, world really right that had its own um aesthetic and and i just loved every little cubic like polygonal well and she's also like an archaeologist right if i'm correct she's not just there to shoot people or adventurer you know right but and it just it appealed to me the the look and feel of the world the what the sound design of tomb raider one Mm. like and and at the time this was very um, it was it was mostly shooters, you know, and this was a, a game where you were just um, running around exploring things, you know, and I, I really felt that, you know, there's not a lot of sh- shooting in Tomb Raider one. It's really, really is its exploration. Yeah. And I, I, um, I just loved things like that. So as yeah. time on, those are the kinds of games I was uh, I was gra- I gravitated to all the time. You know? I love I just lo- I love hearing about this because um, I think there is a. Uh, conception sometimes that you know games involve that type of um you know you have you know there's got to be an end goal or shooting or something and so there are obviously there are a lot of games that aren't like that but it's um it's great to hear somebody from your background who doesn't feel like necessarily a gamer who has who found themselves in that world you know creating games and a whole new genre yeah, we made um, a mistake. We were making games because we hated all of those things. Right, right, right. We just, like we want to make um, things that um, only had the bits that we loved, you know. And what we yeah. loved was GTA Three, going to the <laughs> beach and walking and staring at the sunset and finding all the hidden packages. And um, you know, we liked um, black and white one you know, and you have this creature along with you um, who plays the game with you and you have to like, you know, um, sort of guide this world from uh, being a a few villagers to being this prosperous like world. Right. You know, games like, you know, where you're eco, where you're like a little boy and you're running around like trying to solve this riddle of this environment, you know? Yeah. I love that. So then, um, from the world of games, um, how do you how do you find yourself in the digital sculpture world um, that you are today? I guess it was it was a very big decision um, to stop making video games, but we felt like we had said everything we could mm-hmm. possibly say, and we had been extremely involved um, in. Uh, the independent game scene and its development, uh, both conceptually and like economically, like everything. We felt like we had done everything we could possibly do um, um, and without changing drastically um, our intent. Mm. And so it was a big thing to just stop that, right? And and so, but then it was, became a question for me, what should I do now? Right, uh, right. That, and I kind of didn't know for a minute and I felt really disoriented because <laughs> that was my career, you know? Right. Games. Um, but then um, what had happened was I discovered 3D printing in 2016, I guess. I got my first 3D printer. So how big is the gap between ending games and 2016? Oh, no, it's like a year. 
Oh, okay, okay. 2015, we quit. And then like 20, we put out our last video game, which was called Sunset, um, where we finally felt like we knew what we were doing and everything, but it still felt like, um, you know, we can't say anything more like this right. game it you know and so then in 2016 um we we decided to um sort of dive into arts residencies like just apply for and go on arts residencies basically but at the same time i uh started doing 3d printing um so that's from 3d files sort of like i asked myself right i legit asked myself like what is it that i want to take with me from these years of making video games what can mm. i not let go of and the answer was 3d like inside me, the resounding answer was, you shall keep doing 3D because right. it just, it was part of me at that point, you know, it was like the way I expressed everything, you know, was through these 3D models, 3D worlds, you know, everything. And I didn't want to quit doing it. And also VR had become a thing and we were very interested in making VR work. So we started getting residencies, arts residencies with the intention of creating VR um, installations like physical installations of VR okay. and that's what we did um, throughout um, 2016, 2017. Um, we went to Poland and we had this big residency with um, the Cantor, um, the Tadeusz Cantor Foundation. Uh, Tadeusz Cantor um, was a extremely well-known Polish uh, theater maker. Um, so it was completely different than making video games. It was making a VR theater, basically, based on um, in the work of Tadeusz Kantor, which is a very obscure thing to do, but we loved it. We were just like, right. take it away, you know? So it was a very different thing to do. We created a, um, a VR theater piece called Krikotori, um, which uh, took, we had to stage in an actual theater. We did it in Warsaw. Um, at the Palace of Science and Culture um, in a theater wow. there. And it was like uh, an immersive um, uh, theater piece. Uh, it's more complicated to explain, but yeah. Um, and then, Incredible. Uh, and then we also got a residency here, an arts residency here in Rome uh, to do work on another project of ours, Cathedral in the Clouds, which is sort of ongoing, but um, we were, so this was 2017 and we were still doing VR um we premiered that piece but never quite finished it um and um but we loved here being here in rome and sort of decided then that we would come back anyway not answering your question um, no no this is great <laughs> so but at that say i brought my 3d printer with me when we came to rome for the residency we were here for five months and i brought the 3d printer and i did a lot of experimentation with 3d scanning um, 3D sculpting and 3D printing. And I still hadn't made anything major until we got back um, to Belgium after that. And that's when I made my first, what I consider real sculpture, which was of a Minotaurus. Um, I call that piece the Minoria, but it she she was actually a character that had been in another VR piece. Like it was a character that I had animated and everything. And she was like dancing around in the labyrinth in, in a VR piece. Um, but I sort of was in love with her. And like, I so I brought her out. I felt like I was bringing her out of this virtual world and into the real one by 3D printing and making this bust. Right, her. right. And um, so I made this bust and it was like, and I was just in love totally with, this notion of, um, yeah, with VR, you put people's bodies into virtual spaces in such in such a way that they believe it totally. 
you know, it takes over your entire field of vision and you, your body like believes in that the virtual space implicitly, you know, and, and, and then taking something out of that virtual space and bringing it into the real world was like that. So it's like this really beautiful borderless, like circular kind of notion of what going into and out of virtual world. And, and so I just loved creating sculpture in this way um, and seeing something materialize um, that has previously only been virtual um, right. magic. And again, if you think about what I was saying earlier about that loss of tactility, you know, right. early in my life, to suddenly bring it back into tactility was just like, yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I want to do, you know. So yeah. I discovered that. That's that's so exciting. You've had so many moments in your life where you had that big discovery of like, yeah, that's what I want to do, and felt like, yeah, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm doing this. Uh, that's not what I want to do. And no, no, most of the time it's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Um, but, but, and then on top of that, discovering that it was the pandemic actually that made me start using AR rather mm. than VR. Cause um, of course all that stuff with installations and headsets and stuff wasn't going to happen. The right. last and so I started using AR instead. And, um, and that added like yet another level of um, sort of taking things out of, like I was 3D scanning things and I was creating manipulations into like different characters. So like the Minotaurus is actually my head, like all of these sculptures sort of in one way or another started with my body that I've made in the last two months, two years. Let's right. say. I was using models before that for a minute. Um, but, um, uh, and, and so creating this 3D model that ultimately gets 3D printed and I do other sorts of processes to the 3D print um, after that, really creating a handmade, like one of a kind sculpture out of it. But then it was like, you still have this digital model and my sort of forming of my, uh, you know, practice, you know, being around games, I was like, well, this is another sculpture, you know? So you end up with two sculptures. And then the way that I would show that digital sculpture was via AR. And it mm. felt like, ah, oh, yeah, this is great. So you can have the real object and then project this virtual double next to it that is wow. not necessarily the same. And in the physical sculpture, I'm dealing with real materials, obviously, you know, but they're materials like plastic, uh, clay, um, I'm using composite materials sometimes. Sometimes I'm actually getting bronze pieces um, cast or something that ends up being a part of the sculpture. But in, in the virtual version, the AR version, I can be totally like, you know, imaginative about it and it's made of gold it's made of glass it's made right of blown hand blown like glass like with iridescent flex or some material that's partially wet that you know it's made of blood it's made of like yeah you, know, you can just go off you know on the virtual sculpture and so it becomes this fantasy in a way again you know that's that so exciting projected into people's actual space, you know, and feels real for just, even if only for just a moment looking through your phone, you know. Right, right. And everybody can experience it as opposed yeah. to just a few who can travel to it. Right, um, exactly. Pandemic circumstances. Right. You know. Exactly. So what happens with the technology with you? I mean, you're creating this 3D sculpture 
Uh, and what programs are you using to create your sculptures? Oh, I'm using Blender and ZBrush um, and uh, Substance Painter a lot. Um, yes. That and was then, big three. <laughs> yeah. And then what happens to um, take it into the AR realm? How, what, or do you have to do that or? Yeah, I do that. I just use WebGL, um, 3JS, um, the scripts that I find online, Model Viewer, like, you know, um, it depends on what kind of uh, AR, is it marker-based, is it location-based, or is it um, just, you know, anywhere projected. Um, but I keep it uh, web-based. I don't build apps because um, uh, those require way too much uh dealing with corporations for me to like deal mm. with that too much and right. I, I prefer to just have control over it put it on the web distribute it easily you know via qr code you know no big deal they don't have to you don't have to download anything in order to see it you know it's... well and i um i think i read or um heard about you that you also had like a pay-per-view kind of um, moment in your career where um, people were paying to see some of the artwork, which I think is also really interesting. I'm not sure what else to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back in the day, though. That was in 1999. That was like a a, a, a piece that Michael and I made. Um, and we actually only charged money for it to sort of protect its contents in a way. Like we didn't want, we wanted people to be very serious about wanting to see it. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that might have even been the first sort of pay-per-view, like, artwork in a way uh, right again maybe an early foray into nfts uh <laughs> yeah a little bit it was more like selling tickets to a show or something right but i mean it's like where else are you gonna um pay for the digital art you know to be seen in a way so uh that i guess that aspect of it so i guess moving from there um you know, finding yourself into this um, NFT world. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about that and what, you know, what is that looking like for you? Yeah, I mean, the correlation is definitely there. Um, but um, I think, yeah, it's a big topic. Like having been involved with um, digital art for so long, like um, it's not like we were ever looking for a way of, of making money off of the artworks that we made. But I would say that we made video games because we saw it as a way of selling interactive artwork. Mm -hmm. um, we were always like, this is interactive art. Like no matter what anybody says, that's what video games are. Right. And um, there were tons of people willing to um, really spend time with the work, you know? Right analyze it and play it through and through. Like I said, people have been playing our games for like, you know, half their lives or something. And that's a big responsibility, you know? Yeah. Um, so we were sort of into that notion that people valued it, you know, indeed, you know? And so I think with NFTs, I see it a little bit like that as well. Um, but more than that, um, as someone who's been a practitioner for, like 25 years or something by now, like uh, or more. It's it's it feels like um, to not be involved in this um, in the dialogue of this moment is um, would be sort of a betrayal of everything I've done my entire life. It's like no, this is something major that's happening, and I should try to understand it. And more than that, I should try to help other people understand it. I should try yes. to 
make work that um, that honors what I feel digital art is or can be and not leave it to people to just say, oh, digital art is this, you know, cartoon ape or whatever, you know, not to diss it too hard, but at the same time, no, you know, there's been people who've been making digital art for, you know, since forever, you know what I mean? And it's been a lot of different things. So we need to have that plurality um, of what in that de definition of digital art. Um, the financialization of it is kind of secondary in a certain sense, because um, I don't see that as the necessary, um, like I see that as being the, the, the big cultural question, you know, as being like something that's almost beyond my control. Um, right. And yet my involvement influences things. So it's sort of like um, a big question, an open question that no one can pretend to have the answers to, like in terms of what NFTs are, what the blockchain is and can be and how that's gonna impact culture, the digital culture that we all find ourselves involved in this, um, at web three as opposed to web two or whatever, right. you know, notion of, of um, you know, data collection and uh, who controls protocols and all of this stuff is extremely important as all right. So there's two different issues to me here. There is the history of digital art within art history and there is this um, larger, um, issue around capitalism and um, uh, data collection and yeah, protocols that we um, as a society have to deal with in a much more serious way. Um, and it's hard to reconcile both of those things, you know? Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, it's complicated. It's so it's so complicated. And I think we're all, um, you know, learning as we go. Right. And I think um, I think it is quite interesting, though, the amount of attention, um, even, you know, monetarily that NFTs have garnered. Right. Um, because it's putting digital art into this whole new landscape that, um, you know, just didn't exist before and whether, you know, for good or for bad because of the money aspect of it. But also at the same time, um, why shouldn't a digital artist get paid for their work, even if nobody, right? Exactly. And it's like, it's not like, um, you know, and the struggle has been real, you know, for every digital artist, you know, this notion of trying to make your work and what is your work, you know, and having to redefine that based on your material needs has right. been like the reality of every digital artist, you know, and feeling that to have this sort of feeling right now, like, oh, I get it now I can like, you know, more importantly, other people get it. And they're actually able to see the work in a, in a different way. I think even if people are not involved in NFTs, I think there's a no, new sort of way of looking at it, case in point, my my now my physical sculptures and my digital sculptures are seen on equal ground, which was definitely not the case. Right, right, exactly. Before, and and to be able to do that is like a dream. You know, it's like yes. You know, now of course there's various pitfalls in there, <laughs> but I, I can't say that I'm, I'm I'm I can't hate the the premise of these 
two things being seen equally, you know? Um, so I can only try to understand what's going on and yeah. um, make sure that I'm here for, you know, what I believe in, in this artistic movement that we have. You know? Right. So what are your, um, you know, maybe to close out some of our conversation, mm-hmm. um, what are your thoughts on the metaverse and what this kind of new era that we're entering into, what excites you about it? And, um, you know, yeah, a couple of things about that. Like, to me, the internet is already the metaverse. Mm-hmm. Like, we've already been there. Right. In it. Yeah. You know, right. immersed in it. We are our own avatars to a certain extent. Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, but at the same time, I've always enjoyed creating these virtual worlds and making um, things for people to enjoy within them and hopefully making them see something different about the real world through whatever virtual um, (laughs) objects I'm creating. So I'm excited for people to get past the first phase of this Mm. (laughs) and for it to still be there, I hope. The first phase of this, I think, involves like companies sort of dictating the gateways to those virtual worlds. Um, I'm hoping that we can get past that with a minimum amount of damage. <laughs> and I hope that people um, in still enjoy these worlds. Um, and we get to a point where people are feeling creative within these spaces. Yeah. Um, as a matter of course, let's say, you know, and not so much um, the Facebookification of it, but the getting down to seeing these places as um as retreats, as places where they can go and have a different experience um, of life, I suppose. And I I think that um, enjoying um, the things that artists can create in those spaces, you know, having artists make things um, to be enjoyed by the masses that are not games um, is something I'm excited about. You know, this notion of just creating worlds for people to enjoy. I think is something that's going to catch on more and more. Um, at least I hope so. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the thing that is uh, tricky in my mind is, you know, the blurring of the lines between the digital and the physical, you know, how sometimes we were like the real world versus this digital world and what well, happens there is now. No versus, you know, that's the thing. There just, there is no versus that it's just there, there's yes. they're together. They're sort of overlapping. Right. <laughs> oh, and they always yeah. have been in, in my mind, but. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And just one other question that I wanted to ask you too, just, uh, you know, just to, talking about females in this space and female digital artists and, um, you know, has it been a space that you feel like has been predominantly uh, dominated, I guess, with males and you know, what are the emerging female voices out there saying? Um, it was a great, with a great frustration of mine when I was learning 3D modeling that it was so male dominated, if not in this, in, I mean, mainly in terms of voices and in terms of subject matter. And um, that was actually really painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like having to look at this, you know, the, what was popular in terms of 3D art, um, 
in the early 2000s um, and mid 2000s. It was very frustrating and it did fuel a lot of the designs of the games we made was this you know notion of like no we're going to make a game and it stars six girls and like and it's about growing up you know and it's yeah. about you know we sort of just a lot of what we made in the beginning at least of video games was a reaction against things um that were frustrating us about um games industry and in, in, on my part um 3d art in general so it's um and even now, I would say there is an overweight given to um, the men who create um, 3D art, which is highly annoying because there's so <laughs> many talented women um, creating work that is of value and that is different and beautiful. And and I um, don't know why that is. Um, right. So it's just, you know, I hope that um, now people start to see um, more clearly, I guess, now that digital art is considered valuable to more people than just right. the practitioners, you know, they start to actually see what makes um, a work unique. Um, um, but, you know, you the world doesn't suddenly become a place of... Uh, equality and justice just because, you know, somebody figures out how to charge for, you know, a link to a digital file, you know. Right. So <laughs> I imagine the struggle continues. Um, for sure. I mean, and we always need more trailblazers out there, you know, kind of uh, paving the way a bit more for sure and learning about them. So um, for any of those young uh, artists out there who are interested in finding their way more and more into digital art. Do you have any advice to them? Like what programs to start with or just what, you know, how would you? Well, um, definitely look at the open source community. I mean, there's some great digital imaging programs like Krita and, you know, of course you've got Blender, which I am like oh, six thumbs up about Blender. I love Blender to death. Um, um, also like think about what you have and not what you don't have. Like, so if you have a phone, you mm -hmm. know, what apps can you use on your phone? You know, for example, like I've always done all of my 3d scanning just with my iPhone, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, there's some so great apps definitely today, whether you have like the latest, greatest or not, I was using an iPhone X for like, I don't know, ever until like last year or something, you know, um, and, um, yeah, never stop drawing would be another thing, even though you think like, oh, it's not necessary for me to like do this because I'm all digital. It's like, no, there's a certain value to having things that are not online. Let's put it in, not on the computer, not electric, not lighting up, you know, um, to keep in touch with your hand and your eye and, um, you know, take life drawing, you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. even if even if you're not making figurative work, like just do it because it sort of gives you a different way of looking at things I'd say that's very important um, learn art history um, is another thing and that doesn't have to be like a big deal it's not like I'm telling you to study it in college or something I'm telling you like watch YouTube videos about the history of art and there's so many great ones you know but I think that that's extremely important to understand um aesthetics, composition, you know, all kinds of things like this, you'll just, you pick it up and it's enjoyable, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I teach also. So yeah. <laughs> I have all these things.
this is like my tips are ready, you know, like. Yeah, I love it. No, that's perfect. And also I wanted to ask you as well, um, you know, being a woman of color as well in this space um, and what that experience has been like. And, you know, is that something uh, that you enjoy speaking to and trying to encourage more people of color to get into this um, space? No, I do. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, in the beginning, like, you know, in the beginning when I was taught retreating online, like it wasn't important or I thought it, who I was wasn't important. Um, but at the same time, I did funny things like, you know, have a 24-7 webcam trained on me on my desk, you know. It's like so clearly I was trying to project this certain image, this image of this avatar, as I say, you know, onto the internet so people could see this example of like, look, I'm a Black woman using technology. <laughs> um, although to put it, it didn't put too fine a point on it for a long time, you know. But as I've gotten older, I've noticed that it's important to um, to speak up about things and to um, be vocal about things online, about the fact that um, that you do the do what you do, you know what I mean? And and that alone can be can say a lot, you know, Um, to be present and um, and. And to also state that there's that you're not the only one. Hello, right. you know. And so that's um, yeah. I, I think that's more important now than than it ever has been in a way um, uh, to sort of light a certain path, I guess, for others to um, be involved with this stuff. Uh, the 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 diversity of voices. I mean, it sounds like a cliche at this point, I suppose, but it's the, the diversity is very very important. Right. Um, see these examples of um of people using technology who look like you i think that's like uh, something that can't be underestimated uh, overestimated well yeah for sure and i mean to contribute to the voices um out there as well right because there has been a certain voice that has dominated the space and so what will that space look like as exactly more of this diversity comes forward right yeah yeah and and so I think it's um it's interesting um, to be in a place where you're considered to be um, unusual for being there. You know, it's like to me that's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's true, you know, but the perception is there, and so it's like, well you know, you sort of just plant your flag and go, look, look at all the things I have created, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, like, and, and, you know, it's unquestionable, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. No, it's wonderful. I love it. And um, I uh, thank you so much for being so open and honest with us about um, your journey and your story um, and where you are today. We're going to be watching you closely. And I know a lot of people will find uh great inspiration from this chat for sure and learning so i hope so um yeah yeah. um thanks for all that you guys do um as i said i I, ryan was sort of instrumental in me learning zbrush which is like for which i am forever grateful actually (laughs) um is he has a way of um of explaining things that really spoke to me speaks with a lot of empathy you know yeah struggle of uh learning um, to use digital tools and uh, creativity 
in this space. So, yeah. Yes, for sure, for sure. Well, thank you again, and um, we will definitely stay in touch. Looking forward to more of these chats. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, bye. For Take care. Bye, Aria. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. It really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.